Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. The Gospel of John, chapter 9, our text will be verses 1 to 12. Our Lord is continuing his ministry in Jerusalem. We remember, of course, that he's been at the Feast of Tabernacles. He's been declaring some wonderful truths about himself, that he is the light of the world, that he is the I Am. All of these titles that Jesus is using in order to demonstrate his divinity, to acknowledge who he truly is, and how we remember that when our Lord said this past time, uh, last week, when he said to the Jews, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And we remember that this is one of the, of course, I am statements that he's been saying through the Gospel of John. And he is saying that, and it's in the Greek, it's ego me, which is I, I am. And he's making a direct reference to himself that he is the great I am. We talked about how those passages in the book of Isaiah, especially in the Greek Septuagint, use that very language when the Lord says that I am. And that also harkens back to Exodus chapter 3 when the Lord says to Moses, you tell them that I am has sent you. He says to Moses, I am that I am. And that's the same thing that Jesus is saying by using that very term there, uh, using that statement, I am. Jesus is indeed the great I am. At the time, of course, they took up stones to stone him. He hid himself. He went out of the temple. And now he's still in Jerusalem. He's still ministering to the people, irrespective of what it is that they are trying to do. We have known for a little while now that they are plotting to kill him. They're trying to find opportunity to do so. They were not successful this past time because it was not his hour. And we know that whenever that comes, that indeed he will be handing himself over uh, for the redemption of his people. So here in this passage, we read of this encounter with a blind man, which is not a coincidence whatsoever, because Jesus has just been saying in the previous chapter that he is the light of the world and that those that don't follow him are walking in darkness. And then you have this encounter here with this blind man, and it is obviously to demonstrate that reality once again. Now, there's some interesting dialogue that goes on here between Jesus and his disciples. And it really brings to the forefront the question of why do people suffer? Why are people uh, born blind? Why are they born with ailments? What is, the, what is the purpose of all of that? Because they're going to ask him, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? Now they are automatically placing upon these or this man, some type of a guilt that he must have done something, or his parents must have done something. And it really does uh, bring those, those thoughts to our minds as to how we, re, we respond whenever we see others going through trials or suffering. Because we are very, very quick to look at someone, especially if we're not fond of them, to look at whatever it is that they are going through and to say, you're getting what you deserve. You're getting your just due. And how quickly we are to do that. We make very hasty judgments. And we also tend to take pleasure in the misfortune of others. Um, 
you need to understand something. We all need to understand something. That regardless of whether or not we are fond with the fond of these people, whether or not we agree with them, we should never take pleasure in the misfortune of anyone. We should never look at someone's life and say, well, since you're going through this, it must be because you're a big sinner or you must have done something that angered the Lord as if the, the Lord's wrath is just waiting for somebody to do something wrong so he can just put it out there. And that should not be, uh, that should not be our mindset. That, just, that should not be the disposition of our, our souls towards another. We make very hasty judgments. We take pleasure in the misfortune of others. We don't ever look at ourselves. We're very quick to make judgments about someone else going through trials, but we never look at our own self. We never see the sin and the darkness in our own hearts. We say to them, you get what you deserve. Or we use other terms like, well, that must be their karma. What we need to understand as well that karma is not a Christian concept. It is a concept of the Eastern Indian philosophies, Hinduism, Buddhism, all of that. And it has a place specifically in that mindset. And we'll look, in, we'll look into some of that too. But we need to understand that whatever it is that a person's going through could be for a variety of reasons. Generally speaking, we can make a call on it as to why it's happening. But we should never be so specific as to think that we know why it is that this is occurring. Our hearts should yearn for other people and what it is that they endure in this life. What suffering that comes their way should promote in us a sense of compassion, of mercy, again, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they believe. Because, as we have talked about a number of times, even if you're having disagreements with someone, even if they are just absolutely opposed to everything that you stand for, you have to realize and remember they are image bearers of God. And since they are image bearers of God, they have value, they have dignity, and you should treat them as such. And look for the ways in which you yourself can magnify Christ in, in whatever it is that they're going through or whatever it is that you're going through. To magnify Christ, not bring reproach upon him. To glorify him in this situation or in this particular occurrence, whatever. Jesus indeed gives us a great example of how we ought to respond to the suffering of others, as well as, again, manifesting his divine nature to us once more and pointing to himself as the great source of eternal salvation. May our Lord Jesus be magnified in our hearts as we work our way through this passage. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is John chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. And let us hear the words of the living God. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he would be born blind. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, 
he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, how we give you praise and honor for who you are. Father, we have come this morning to humble ourselves before you, to ascribe worth to you, to honor you in our thoughts, in our hearts, with our words. Now, Father, I pray that the Spirit of God will move mightily within us this morning and teach us, guide us through this passage and apply it to our hearts that we would be even more faithful unto you, that we would learn more, that we would grow in our understanding, that we would serve you with a greater genuine heart. Help us to have compassion and mercy as you do. Help us to see the opportunities in order to magnify you as our Lord Jesus did. Bless the preaching of your word and may it accomplish all you desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> now, some theologians do say that there could have been somewhat of a time lapse uh, from the events that happened in chapter 8. Perhaps the Feast of Tabernacles is over. Uh, maybe it's the same day. But irrespective of, of what day it is, he's still in Jerusalem. He's still ministering to the people. He's still preaching. He's still fulfilling what it is that the Father has for him to do. And again, it is not by coincidence that John is going to record this for us after telling us that Jesus is the light of the world. And here Jesus is going to grant sight to this blind man. So this text tells us that as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Maybe he was a man that they knew, that they had saw pretty often. Uh, we're not really told how they knew that he was born this way. But irrespective of that, this man was blind from birth. And so his disciples ask him this question, a question that perhaps we ask ourselves often, especially if we see others in pain. If we care about those that are in pain and going through suffering, we ask those questions as well. Pretty much, why is this happening? What is the purpose of this? Is this chastisement towards them? Is this, is this just a trial that they're going through? We try to rationalize so many things in our minds to try to come up with an answer in order that we can either be satisfied in ourselves to understand why it's happening, or that we can go to the person themselves and then try to encourage them. A lot of times we find ourselves being like Job's friends. Miserable friends that have nothing good to say, but that just want to point out all the wrongs that they're doing and say that this is why that you're suffering. We see great errors of judgment in the minds of the disciples right here. They ask the question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man 
or his parents that he would be born blind. So they attribute this man's condition, either one, it's his own fault, or two, it's the fault of his parents. Now, there's a number of different scenarios that we can come up with as to why this has occurred, or why it is that it's occurred in your life, or why it's occurred in someone else's life. Why is it that it's happening in the lives of those that you don't like? We like to point that out, especially if it's someone, again, that we're not too fond of. Is it possible that, let's look at some of these things. Is it possible that this man could have sinned and then been born blind? Now, some of the rabbis would teach at this time that you could sin in the womb. Now, we know that we're all born into sin. We know that the moment we take our first breath or even as we're being developed, we know we're sinners. We know that. The rabbis taught that a baby could sin in the mother's womb. And depending, I guess, on whatever sin was committed in the womb, that the baby could be born with some type of a defect. Now, some of the rabbis taught also that Esau tried to kill Jacob in the womb. Uh, just casting more uh, dispersions upon Esau, no doubt. Or it could be the fault of his parents. Maybe his parents sinned. Maybe they did something that just angered the Lord as to why the Lord allowed this to happen. Now, we understand that there are things that parents can do that will cause their children to be born with medical issues or things of that nature. We know that's possible. Now, Jesus is going to tell us that's not the case here. We don't automatically assume something like that. We should never do that. What's some other reasons? Well, again, we talked about karma. People will look at other people and say, well, that's just karma catching up with them. That's why they're this way. That's why they're going through this. Well, again, karma has no place in the Christian life whatsoever, in the Christian worldview. It is something that is within Hinduism. It is in Buddhism. It is in the New Age philosophies. It is the law of cause and effect. If you believe in karma, then surely you believe in reincarnation or transmigration because that's where it's rooted in. Karma is the law of cause and effect. Whatever it is that you did in your previous life, you're now suffering for in this life. <clears throat> to try to purge yourself of karma so maybe the next time you cycle back, you'll have a better kind of a life. Or you're, you'll not come back as a snail. Or a slug or whatever else you can come up with. Karma doesn't exist. There is no such thing because you only have one life. And that's this life. You didn't live a previous life and then cycle back to live this life. You have only one life. You were created by your Lord to live this one life and then enter into eternity. That's it. What about God's wrath? Here's where Job's friends were coming in. This is where we often settle in right in this area. That it must be God's punishment towards this person. You're getting what you deserve. We again take the role of Job's friends to point the finger at others and to say, 
this is why, because God is punishing you. This Because you did this, God is punishing you. John Calvin says this, If my brother meets with adversity, I instantly acknowledge the judgment of God. But if God chastises me with a heavier stroke, I wink at my sins. If we wish to be candid judges in this matter, let us learn to be quick in discerning our own wills, rather and our, <clears throat> our own evils, rather than those of others. So, like Calvin's saying, we are often very quick to point out someone else's, and then when we feel like the Lord's chastising us, or if the Lord is actually chastising us, then we just kind of, it's not that big of a thing. They're the bigger sinners over there. We don't ever look at ourselves and we don't ever consider what darkness is still in our hearts or what sins it is that we still contend with. We always want to point out someone else's and then we want to compare ourselves with them. Well, since they're going through that and I'm not, surely I must be in a better position than they. The Apostle Paul tells us this in Galatians chapter 6. Beginning in verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each will bear his own load. So what's he saying? He's saying you that really think you're something really think that you're high and mighty because you compare yourself to someone else, recognize that you're really nothing. You're deceiving yourself. If you want to boast, then boast in comparison to the one uh, that, that is the standard, which is Christ. I think we will find ourselves falling very short uh, when we do that. We take pleasure in God's wrath being poured out upon another, or at least in those mindsets of what we think. We take pleasure in the misfortune of others because they offended us. They done us wrong. Or they just have a, a mindset or a worldview that is just totally opposite of ours and it's only advocating evil. And so we look at that and we say, well, yeah, the Lord's dealing with you rightly. You deserve more than that. We say. And we, we take pleasure in that. Do you know that one of the reasons why the Lord judged Edom in the book of Obadiah was because they took pleasure in the misfortune of Israel when Israel was taken captive. And that is very plainly understood within that book. It's only one chapter. But that's exactly... One of the reasons why the Lord judged them, why the Lord was so harsh upon them, it would be delivered back on their own heads because they took delight in the misfortune of Israel and the misfortune of God's people. What do we say about suffering when it comes to those whom we do care about? We try to come up with all kinds of answers to give people, especially when they're going through such suffering or trials. We want to be able to help. We want to be able to, to come alongside of them, to encourage their hearts. But still yet, 
we have to come back to this understanding that we really don't know any specifics as to why it is that the Lord is allowing this to happen in their life. We don't know. We try to come up with answers, but really when we come up with those answers, all we do is, is only sometimes make the situation worse. Produce a little bit more anger, perhaps. One theologian says this, Anyone who has endured a great trial can tell you that quick and easy explanations offer little comfort. Much less does it help when Christians falsely claim that suffering proves that the one has simply not trusted God enough. That seems to be a big one, too. We try to come up with easy answers for them. This is why this is happening in your life. But we really don't know. What is it that we should do? Here's, here, here's maybe what we ought to look at. What is it that we should do whenever someone is going through trials and suffering? We should take opportunity to pray for them, pray with them, weep with them, rejoice with them. Whatever it is that, that the situation is calling for, those are the things that we need to do. When we take pleasure in the misfortune of anyone, we, we, we're not following what God has said and, and weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. All of those things that we should be doing we stand off and say, well, that's just your own fault. Or we try to come up with other answers and all of that when we just need to be there with the person and we need to, to offer words of comfort, yes, but we don't need to try to rationalize what is happening. This is why this is happening. We don't know that. You know, interestingly, Job never found out what was going on in his life as to why the Lord allowed the things that he did. We know because we get to read the book. We know what happens at the beginning. We know that the conversation between the Lord and Satan, we understand why these things are happening. But you know, Job is never told why these things are happening. Job's friends never come up with the actual answer as to why these things are happening. But what is it that Job learns through that, that whole ordeal of suffering? He learned who God was. He says at the very end, I have heard of you. But now I know you. Whatever the reason may be, it should always be that we're trying to lead that person to a greater, a deeper relationship with Christ, to cling more to Him, to show more dependence upon Him, to exercise their faith even more in Him. Those are the things that we should do rather than trying to come up with answers. But why, why do we suffer? Jesus is going to say that this man is suffering not because anything that he did, not because of anything his parents did. Jesus is going to tell uh, his disciples here that it was this way because it was necessary that the works of God would be displayed in him. That's why, in this particular instance, that God would demonstrate his greatness through this man in this whole situation. This suffering was that God may be glorified. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's why this particular man was suffering. Perhaps that's why some of us do suffer, just so that God will be glorified in our suffering. And we look at that and we say, well, how can that even be possible? How is it that God can be glorified in our suffering? Isn't that, isn't that evil? Isn't that wrong? And the answer is no. That is not it. And actually... 
the Lord says to the, the church of Philippi, to you it has been granted not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his namesake. Why? What does that do? It produces in us a greater dependence upon our Lord, uh, a greater uh, confidence in our Lord, a greater trust in our Lord. Because you have only one place to run. You have only one place to go. And that's to him. And so what does suffering do in the, in the instances of your suffering? You're going, you're going to the Lord in prayer. You're, you're casting all your care upon him. I don't understand this, but I know that you do. Teach me what I am to learn from this. And so your, your, your prayer is being intensified. Your faith is being intensified through this whole scenario. And it's being cast upon the Lord. And you're growing as a result of it. That's why James says, count it all joy when you endure various trials, knowing that the trying of your faith produces patience and let patience have its perfect work so that you will be lacking nothing. That's why Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which will come upon you for the testing of your faith as if some strange thing happened to you. Because it's for the testing of your faith. Suffering has its place in the life of believers and actually the uh, the apostles say in, in the book of Acts, with many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. It is part of the Christian life. If everything was good and we had no problems. How much faith would we have in the Lord? How much trust will we have in the Lord? How much dependence will we show in the Lord if everything was always going well? Suffering produces a greater dependence upon the Lord. Suffering produces opportunities that the Lord would use, of course, to magnify his name. There's a number of reasons why the Lord allows suffering. Sometimes it is for discipline. That's true. The writer of Hebrews tells us that for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. We know that. Sometimes the suffering that happens in your life is to prepare you for something else. Sometimes when you see others in their time of suffering, maybe it's something that is to help you be prepared for what may come in your life. You think of all the suffering that Jesus endured, all the trials that Jesus endured, all the slandering that he endured. What did it do? You have these 12 men, one a devil, 12 men who's right there with him, enduring all of this, seeing all of this, and they're seeing their master going through all of those those. Uh, debates and, and, and the slandering and all of that. What's it doing? It's preparing them for the time in which he's going to ascend, send the Holy Spirit of God, and they are going to go and do it too. It was for their preparation. Sometimes it may be for that reason. How many of us have been encouraged through what has happened in someone else's life? Of how they have suffered so greatly or what great trial that they have went through and it has affected us to the point of, of, of helping us to grow in our faith. There are all kinds of reasons why it is that the Lord allows these things in our life. If we really want to pinpoint a reason, you know, aside from those things, then we could just say, well, why is there suffering? Because of Adam. Because of one man's disobedience, sin came into the world, death by sin, all of that. But when you start trying to pinpoint specifics is when we end up sometimes causing more trouble than anything. What is it that you're going through? What is it that you have went through? 
can you, can you take the things that you are enduring and be able to glorify the Lord in it? That's what it all comes down to. Regardless of what the reasoning is as to why you're suffering, use it in order to glorify the Lord. The Apostle Paul. He prayed three times for the Lord to take away the thorn in the flesh, whatever the thorn in the flesh would have been. What did the Lord say? Pretty much told him no. But why? He said, my grace is sufficient. And my power is perfected in weakness. His grace is sufficient for whatever it is that you're going through. How can you take your trial and your suffering and, and, and use it as a means to glorify God? To magnify Christ? Instead of allowing yourself to be defeated. We get defeated way too easily. Trials are not meant to make you defeated. That's not the meaning. That's, that's not the purpose of them. It's to make you grow. Does that mean that they're all going to be you know, easy to get through? No, not at all. And in fact, some of the, the lesser trials you could say that last the longest are some of the most difficult to get through. But what does he say? He says, my grace is sufficient. And the Lord can use that trial or whatever to display his greatness through you. To display his mighty power through you. We need to, to look at, at why it is that things have happened. Yes, but how can we use that? That's what we should always get to. Sometimes we have to let go of the why and asking the why. We need to get to the part of show me what I am to do that I can glorify you in this. Jesus is going to do something amazing here, of course. He says the works of God need to be displayed in this man. And actually, uh, this is also should be a great encouragement to us. That John is not allowing the Lord, or uh, Jesus is, is pretty much taking responsibility here, and John is, is recording that for us. Why is it that this man was born blind? Because God decreed it so. And actually, the Lord says in Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, he says this to Moses, when he's telling Moses that I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and this is what you're going to say. And Moses comes back, and I, you know, I'm not really eloquent in speech, you know, I'm not really good at talking. And the Lord says to Moses, who made man's mouth or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The Lord is the one who creates us in the womb. It is the Lord who who appoints our time in the place in which we will live and, and who our parents will be. All of that is ordained by the Lord. And that should give us even greater hope and greater strength to know that it's the sovereignty of God that we're trusting in. If this trial is happening, it's because the sovereign hand of God has ordained it. And it's the sovereign hand of God that's going to bring us through. Jesus is going to show his divine nature here. He is going to magnify himself once more through this whole ordeal. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me 
As long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. <clears throat> what are the works of him that sent him? Well, for Jesus, we know it was obeying the law of God perfectly. It was being declared righteous. It was to do whatever it is that the Father had for him to do. Ultimately, it's going to go to the cross. He's going to go to the cross. He's been preaching about the kingdom. He's been preaching about pointing to himself as the source of eternal life and salvation. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He's the door. He is the great I am. Everything that he's done, everything that he said, every miracle that he's done has been doing the works of him that sent him. Now, this is still true, and not only for Christ, it was true for the disciples, it is true for you, that in the time of your lifespan, we must work the works of him that sent us. What are the works of God that you should be doing? What are the things that God has called you to do? Because this isn't just a scenario where they're just passing by this blind man and they look and they say, well, we need to ask philosophical questions here as to why this is occurring and then we can go on our way. Something else is going to occur here that Jesus is going to use as, a, as an example to, to put your faith in practice here. What are the works of God? Well, it could be works of service. It could be works of mercy. It's, it's glorifying the Lord. It's worshiping Him. It's praising Him. It's declaring the gospel. It's so many different things. Your sanctification so many different things that are revealed in the word of God as to what we are supposed to be doing. It is so odd to me. I have to say this. It is so odd to me when people say, I really don't know what God's will is for my life. Well, if we would just pick up the scripture and read, we would know very clearly what God's will is for our life. It's plainly spoken in here. And those are the things that we do. Those are the things that we put into practice. So what does Jesus do? He says this, he says he's the light of the world. And by the way, this isn't considered to be one of the great I am statements because when he says there, I am the light of the world, he doesn't use the same wording beforehand when he uses ego a me, I, I am, referring to himself as the great I am. Here he just says a me, which is a singular form, a more simpler form of I am. After he declares that he's the light of the world, he spat on the ground, he made clay of the spittle, and applied it to this man's eyes. Now this is very reminiscent of what happened in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 8, when Jesus used saliva in order to, to heal uh, these people. But here he makes clay. He spits on the ground, he makes this paste, and he puts it over this man's eyes. And after he puts this over this man's eyes, he goes to tell him, he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. So many questions as to why it is that, this, that Jesus did this. Why, when he could just touch the man, why, if he could just speak it, why does he do this? Instead of, of just healing the man like he normally did. There's a, obviously a lot of ideas there. Um, at the time, it was understood, uh, the rabbis taught that, that saliva, blood, urine, all of these things would make you unclean. However, if it was used by uh, an appointed person, um, an authorized person, then it could be used in order to bring healing or be used in an honorable way. So maybe that could be a reason why Jesus is doing that. That he's using spit 
in order to, to heal this man. It could be that it's reminiscent of the Genesis 2 account of how the Lord had made man from the dust of the earth. And you have, you have Jesus here, that this man's eyes are not working. He's blind. And so Jesus grabs some dust. He makes a paste and he's going to create him some new eyes. Again, making a demonstration of him being the sovereign God that formed man from the dust of the earth. That could be a reason as well. Whatever the reason, this is how it happened. And so he tells the man, go to the pool of Siloam. Now, we talked about that. This is the first time John mentions it, but we talked about the pool of Siloam, that it was where uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles that they would take the big containers and they would go gather water for their uh, water rites that they would do. The pool of Siloam had received water uh, through a channel that was carried from the spring of Gihon in the Kidron Valley, which is in the southwestern part of the city. It was one that was created by Hezekiah. It is referenced in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus says, or John tells us rather, that Siloam means, is translated meaning sent. Now, in the Hebrew, it was Shaloah. This is mentioned in Isaiah chapter 8. It is mentioned again in Ezekiel, or referenced in Ezekiel chapter 47. And it was, it was always referencing the blessings of God. Like Isaiah talks about in, in Isaiah 8, the gently flowing waters of Shaloah, which means sent. These particular waters the people of Israel had rejected. And so it's not talking literally. It's talking about the figurative blessings of the Lord that were coming to the people and they rejected it. But then when you get to Ezekiel 47, it's talking about the waters flowing once again from the temple down to the people and demonstrating the blessing of God. And so it is by no coincidence that Jesus tells this man to go to that particular pool to wash his eyes that he would see again the pool, which is Siloam, meaning sent. Jesus, as many theologians are trying to tie this, of course, back to our Lord, are acknowledging that, of course, that Jesus is the sent one from God. And the fact that he tells this man to go to this pool, which is translated the very word there, sent, that he is demonstrating that those blessings that are coming from God, perhaps that are alluded to in Ezekiel 47, are blessings that he himself is giving. It's not the water that causes any healing. It's not the pool itself that causes any healing. It's, it's by Christ who is the sent one of God that is bringing about this healing in this man. Again, he's magnifying himself. He's showing he can open the eyes of the blind. He can do whatever he wishes to do because he has all power and authority to do it. When you're looking at the life of Christ, that's what he's doing. He's demonstrating that he is the promised Messiah, that he is the I am, that he is God in the flesh. And through all the things that he, that he is performing amongst the people, it is all pointing back to himself, that he is the source of all the living water. He is the source of of all the blessings of God. He is the source of eternal life. All of that. This man comes back and he's seen. Now the people are, are recognizing him. Some are trying to say, well, maybe it's not him. Maybe he's like him. But the man keeps saying that he is the one. And his eyes were opened by Jesus. Again, the Son of God was magnified here. The works of God were displayed in this man because of what Christ did. 
another instance in which our Lord, once again, was all about the work of his father, about honoring his father, magnifying once again who he is. That's why it's so important to understand who Christ rightly is. There are many ideas of Christ today, but it doesn't matter unless it's the one that we read of in Scripture. This is the Christ that we serve. This is the God that we serve. And that's what he does continually. Establishing the truth of who he is. So that there would be no mistaking from anyone concerning who he is. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a great teacher. He's not some moral example that we need to follow and, and try to walk in his steps because it seemed like he lived a good life. He's not one that minimized sin or tells people to come as you are. This is the holy, righteous God cloaked in human flesh that came to carry out the works of his father. That came to fulfill the will of his father. To fulfill all the righteousness of the law. That his righteousness would be imputed to you through faith. Now in all of that. Again we see some. Some wonderful things no doubt concerning. The person of Christ. And who he is. But also a great lesson to learn. As well of how we ought to work the works of God of how we ought to look at others during their trials, of how we ought to respond to those whom we come in contact with and, 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 and offering to, to minister to them. Do we leave people um, in their trial and, and to endure whatever without offering uh, to, to help in some way? Are we not to show mercy? Are we not to demonstrate love towards all if we have opportunity? Those are things, of course, that we are to do. And that's what he teaches the disciples there. Let's not just talk about why this man's born blind. Let's do something here that God will be glorified in it. That's why, as Jason had taken us through James, but it's never the right scenario to say, be warm, be filled, and go on your way. faith without works is dead being by itself there is a way that we ought to respond to the world a way that we ought to respond to those that we even disagree with and it is always it always should be to glorify Christ in the way that you speak in the way that you respond to them never to I always and this is again what I've told my kids even when you're in debate with someone, even when you're in an argument, whatever, you never tear down the person. Never. Because they're image bearers of God. They have value. They have dignity. You tear down the argument. You cast it down. You destroy the argument. But you don't destroy the person. There is a way that you should treat people even in those moments of disagreement. We don't resort to things like that. Always we are to honor Christ. And to work the works of God while it is still day. To use our time wisely. 
use your time wisely. We don't know when it is that the Lord's going to call us home, when the Lord's going to take us out. So we use the, the time that is given to us to work while it is still day in order to bring honor to Christ. I think that's what we should be doing. Remember, as I've shared with you before, and it was such a powerful sermon by Jonathan Edwards. And it was on the passage in Ephesians of redeeming the time. When time is gone, it's lost. You can never get it back. A man in one lifetime, he can gain riches, he can lose them, he can get it back. But any time that is lost is gone. You can't get it back. So use your time wisely. Redeem the time. Is what Edwards is, is going that's the whole point of what he's saying. Don't waste it. Don't squander it. He says, come with me to the deathbed. And I will show you those that would give anything to have a moment of your time. He says, descend with me to the very bowels of hell. And I will show you those that would give anything to have one moment of your time. So use your time wisely. And work the works of him while it is still day. Show honor to your fellow man. Rebuke if necessary, absolutely. Point out evils, absolutely. But show that they are valuable in God's sight. And honor Christ while you still have opportunity. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for what it teaches us. Thank you for the examples that it gives us of how we ought to respond to our fellow man in their time of need, in their time of trial. Help us to have more compassion, to show greater mercy, not to allow our hearts to be bitter or to be hardened because of the differing views that we would have with others. Or to have a hardened heart because of being done wrong. or Whatever the case is. Help us to be more like you. Father, we can't do it on our own. We need the Spirit of God to do this work within us. Help us to bring honor to your name and not reproach. Help us to have a heart for the lost. And to take the opportunities that we that we have to preach the gospel to the lost. That if it be your will, you bring them to faith. Help us to be faithful and to honor you in this life while we still have opportunity. Father, be glorified in us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.